Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. In October, Boise State University announced its most ambitious fundraising campaign to date. The goal of the unbridled campaign is to have $500 million in donations in hand by the year 2028. Now, Boise State has already raised about $300 million of this, so what we're really talking about is about $200 million in fundraising over the next several years. So what are the objectives? Where would all this money go? And how does it fit into the bigger picture of funding higher education? To answer those questions, I sat down this week with Boise State President Marlene Trump, Boise State Vice President for University Advancement Matthew Ewing, and Boise State's Vice President for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management Jeremiah Shin. We talk about unbridled, we talk about enrollment trends, and we look ahead to the 2024 legislative session and the ongoing debate over higher education funding at the State House. I also take a few minutes to talk to President Trump about a startling story that came out from our friends at BoiseDev.com. Last week, Boise Dev reported, uh, based on court depositions and the uh, sworn statement of a Boise State employee, that Boise State employees have been instructed to rename files, rename public records so that they're uh, impossible to obtain through a public record search, and that Boise State employees have been instructed to keep controversial topics, politically politically sensitive topics, out of public records. I spent a few minutes talking to President Trump about that story and about Boise State's uh, approach to public records. Here's our conversation. Well, President Trump, let me begin with you. I want to get an overview of the unbridled campaign. What is the objective and where do things stand right now? I can tell you that I'm very excited about this and that um, as soon as um, I arrived at Boise State, it became clear to me that one of the things I really wanted to do was start to bridge the gap on student support. And uh, as soon as I brought um, VP Ewing in, I said to him, Matthew, we've got to figure out how to really make a difference for Idaho students. And I said to him at that time, I'd love for our goal of this campaign to be ensuring that no Idaho student has unmet financial need at Boise State. And I thought he would tell me, that's crazy. We can't imagine doing something like that. But he said, I think that's possible by the end of this campaign. And so that was the place where we began, was really thinking about how do we remove that financial barrier for students and really make a difference in students' lives. And then when you're talking about making a difference in students' lives and making it possible for the faculty to do their great work, it's really an obvious step to say, how do we really ensure that we support and retain and give the capacity to our excellent faculty to make sure that they can do outstanding research and bring students into that research, grad and undergrad, and, and make possible for them the kinds of experiential learning that comes from being a part of research, whether that's in the humanities or the natural sciences or engineering or public service, anywhere on the curriculum. And we know that a lot of our donors discover us through Boise State Broncos. They love athletics. And there was a long history of giving to support athletics here because people felt that the athletics program really matched the character of the place, the state, and, and became a part of who we were as a university, which is this scrappy creativity and thinking outside the box and, and doing things that are unexpectedly excellent 
um, given their humble beginnings. And so we wanted to really help donors be a part of advancing the excellence of athletics, but also seeing the way in which when they walked across that bridge to academics, they enhanced the experience of the entire student athlete, they enhanced the experience of our entire student body, and they enhanced the, the value of the university to the state. So those three pillars seemed really obvious to me, and it really seemed like um, a way to make a huge difference in students' lives and in the future of the university. And Matthew, maybe you can put this into some broader context. Um, I know this is the largest campaign of its kind in Boise State, so it's sort of a $500 million goal. How does that compare maybe with what your colleagues at peer institutions are doing? Um, I think you see campaigns of varying sizes. Um, this is the university's second comprehensive campaign, Kevin. So the three main priorities that the president touched on there um, align with our blueprint for success. And the one thing that I would add to, to the president's comments, as we were going through the planning phase of this, we wanted to see if they would align with our donors. So we spent months testing these. Were these the right things that would energize our supporters? Um, and they were, overwhelmingly. And not surprisingly, at the very top of that was scholarships and the support of, of our students. Um, so in a comprehensive campaign, you're also you're counting everything. So all support to, to the university matters. But we're positioning the university or the, our messaging around where the greatest impact in that philanthropy can align. So at $500 million, uh, you, you may see our sister institution up north. They're in the middle of a comprehensive campaign as well. Uh, they have a goal of $500 million. Our last campaign at Boise State, just to put it in context, was over a decade ago. Uh, that goal was less than $200 million. So it's ambitious for us. Um, you look across the landscape of higher education. One of the things, Kevin, and this is, uh, it's going to probably sound a little odd that I say this being from my position and what I do. Um, comprehensive campaigns have kind of gotten out of hand a little bit. You see these billion dollar campaigns. Um, what was important with us was A, we were going to get an ambitious number but one that we knew would come back to actually making an impact. And so that when we completed and said what we were gonna do, we could report back to our donors, our faculty, our students, our staff, and show them the direct impact. So you'll probably hear me talk very little about that 500 million. And you're gonna hear us talk more about what it's actually going to, to accomplish. And I do wanna get back to that kind of prioritization process mm -hmm. and, and the interface with, with donors, but, but Jeremiah, I wanna get you into the conversation too here. From your perspective, uh, from the enrollment perspective, what aspects of this campaign do you feel will most move the needle in terms of bringing students into campus and the experience that they have as, as members of the Thanks, Kevin. I, I think what the president said to start um, and, and her ambitious goal of being sure that, that financial need was not an obstacle for our Idaho students, I believe that this campaign can be an absolute game changer for particularly our Idaho students. 74% of our Idaho students receive some form of need-based aid. 74, 36% of our Idaho students um, receive a Pell Grant, a federal Pell Grant, which demonstrates significant financial need. 
And so private philanthropy is going to be key um, for us as we continue to, again, open our doors to all of Idaho, to advance Idaho, and to be sure that as our go-on rate improves, um, and uh, we can continue to serve the state by reducing that financial barrier for Idaho students. And so for me, that is, that's the important part from an enrollment perspective, is just being sure that finance is not an issue for our students as they choose to come to Boise State. There's never a shortage of things that you love to do with more money and things that you love to do with money. But this is a very deliberate set of goals, three goals. How did you arrive at that? Well, you heard this president speak a little bit to that. I mean, first and foremost, and it's in our mission statement, Keith, um, or Kevin, we are a student-centered research university, student-centered. And so we knew at the very beginning that a main pillar was going to be around what Jeremiah, the president, spoke around there. Then, and yes, I mean, there's no shortage of needs on this on this campus. Um, we then worked with our foundation board, with our deans and academic leaders, to identify what those priorities were going to be. And then, as I said earlier, actually took those out to our donors. Uh, we did mass surveying of all of our alumni base. We did individual interviews with some of the most engaged donors and volunteers to say, again, does this resonate? And one of those things that, that is a cornerstone of this in terms of the type of giving that we're looking for as well is a heavy focus, particularly on the faculty support and the scholarship support, is around endowed support versus current use. Um, that has not been the type of fundraising Boise State has historically focused on. Um, but allowing that money to come in so that it's building for the future, and we're not just trying to solve a a one-year problem here. We're looking, and I hear the president challenge all of us a lot to be thinking about what's the 20, 50-year horizon? Mm -hmm. And I was really pleased that, be, I didn't know how our donors would respond to that, but overwhelmingly, they are, they are responding. Um, we've raised more than $55 million in endowed scholarships just for this campaign alone so far. 55 million. $55 million in endowed scholarships. And one of the just remarkable things that came out of this, um, and I'm going to try not to get too technical in this, this response, <laughs> so bear with me, um, but it's important. So I, remember I said we haven't focused on endowed fundraising here. Most of the time, the objection we get from a donor when we ask them for an endowed gift is, I get why that's important for the university. I want to see my resources impact a student right now. Right. As opposed to sitting and earning Sitting, earning, and, and going. Yes, exactly. And a lot of times we will see a donor that will make a multi-year commitment to reach a certain threshold to get the endowment big enough to actually make an impact for a student. Well, that takes time. So our foundation board heard that and stepped up, and they've uh, invested in what we're calling a bridge program. It's not only like a donor match that, mm -hmm. that you may be familiar with other campaigns that allows the donor to accomplish both. So the foundation has invested two and a half million dollars. As a donor is building up their endowment, the foundation's gonna step in and make sure that student gets the money they want. And so they get the benefit of seeing their money put to use one through the bridge program. And then after that five year period, when it's fully vested, it will start to pay out and the foundation's investment will, will pull back. Okay, so there's a little bit of disclosure heading into a follow-up question here. So as a Boise State alum and as a donor, 
I, I have always tried to earmark my money towards financial aid, both, mm -hmm. you know, to Boise State and to uh, the school where I got my undergrad degree because there's no way I get my bachelor's degree without that aid. So I, I'm on board with that. But also, as I, as I do giving, as I do giving with my school where I went uh, and got my bachelor's, I wanted to kick some money into the student newspaper where I had a pretty undistinguished short career as a freshman. <laughs> How do you allow donors to, you know, kind of tailor where they want to get their money, even as you're trying to really prioritize three areas? So we are, a word I use a lot is donor-centered, okay? And you hear that a lot in fundraising. And I think historically, though, when you lean too heavy donor-centered, what you end up raising money for is rightfully what the donors are interested in, but it doesn't always align with what's gonna also move the university forward. Mm -hmm. So what we've been able to do with messaging this campaign is really stating clearly what the university's priorities are because we believe that is where the impact can be made the most. But at the end of the day, if the donor doesn't want to support that, then we start to work with them on where the area that they are passionate about that can also make the impact. And maybe I'll add something to this, Kevin. Um, uh, you probably know Dwayne Stickle, who um, gave a major gift towards our Sky Center. Yes, exactly, of Sky Center fame. <laughs> and um, Dwayne has described he made a two, he and um, his wonderful wife made a $2 million gift to um, support Julie Oxford, who's a faculty member who does breast cancer research and brain research. And um, she's done amazing work. So they created her endowed professorship. She has now brought $45 million back into the state and the university through her research. And Dwayne said as a businessman, that was the best investment he ever made in his career. And the number of people that Julie has brought into her research and the impact she's made across, not just in trailblazing knowledge, but in having students be a part of, think how different it is for a student to be a part of, of doing breast cancer research and then to go out and try to get a job, right? Like, that's a kind of experience that's just transformative for them. And so he really has seen the, the impact of that gift in terms of the, not just one student getting um, funding for going to school, but hundreds and hundreds of students that Julia has impacted over the years. And so what we're also trying to help our donors see is the way that that kind of gift just amplifies the impact and spreads out to so many students. And I could imagine, for example, endowing a professorship that is designed to support excellent journalism and to support the student newspaper and to ensure that students you know, got an opportunity to be working with professional journalists like yourself and, and have that experience. I am so proud that one of our recent grads um, now works for NPR and I hear her on the radio all the time. Amen of Bustillo. And she's amazing. And, and that is a consequence of her working on that student newspaper, getting a, a job locally here in industry, and then springboarding from that out into yeah. the world. And we want to give as many of our students those kinds of opportunities as possible. So what we're really trying to help 
the people who've been so generous with the university see is they're those really important um, current use gifts that they've been giving for years. We can make generations of impact with something like an endowed scholarship or an endowed professorship. Mm -hmm. and, and it feels like, this all kind of ties into a question I wanted to ask you all. It feels like as reporters covering higher education and covering universities, we tend to fixate on other big pieces of the budget, you know, tuition and fees as it translates into enrollment. And I want to talk more about that. State support as it translates into what happens at the legislature, and I definitely want to ask you more about that. But yeah. in the big picture, it feels like we don't spend enough time looking at the role of, of philanthropic contributions and how that fits into the puzzle. Thank you so much for saying that. I think, you know, I think it is often an unsung part of the narrative. And I had a, um, a student ask me, gosh, tuition went up. And I said, our costs have just gone through the roof. We have to continue to make sure our faculty and staff are, are paid fairly. But we know that that cost burden affects because, and you've heard me say this before, Kevin, Nationally, there's been about a 30% decline in state appropriations for public higher education. And that means that cost burden has shifted to students, so I'm very conscious of that too. As a first generation graduate, I'm really keenly conscious of that. I worked three jobs when I was in school. My dad was working triple overtime to make sure I could get through school. So I understand that burden. So what we're trying to do is ensure that this scholarship fundraising is helping to really bridge that gap for our students. And and we, we know that as there's, there's a pretty clear trajectory of the decline in investment in public higher education nationally. And, and we are unquestionably the most efficient institution in the state. In fact, um, our cost to deliver um, a degree is lower than any of our sister institutions, and we get a smaller appropriation than any of our sister institutions. So we have been extremely efficient. But that doesn't mean that just like a gallon of milk goes up in price when inflation goes up, that our costs don't go up too. And so what we're trying to do is be very proactive and get out in front of those rising costs to really make sure we're providing support for our students. And, and Jeremiah has built programs all across the university to make sure that we're catching all the different kinds of often invisible needs that students have so that we can make sure they get the support they need to be successful. Can you elaborate a little one? Well, certainly. I, so I was, I like the president, I was a first generation college student. I went to college on a Pell Grant. It was from a rural area. So my story is similar to the stories of a lot of the students that we serve. And that's one of the reasons I'm proud to work at Boise State. But in addition to the uh, meeting the financial needs, we want to be sure that we are a university that is responsive to our student population and their needs. And so, for instance, in, in my division, the Division of Student Affairs and Enrollment Management, we're spending a lot of time in conversations about how to make it easier for students to navigate the university. We want everything that a, that a student encounters when they're on campus to be a little easier next year to navigate than it was last year because we believe that students who come to Boise State are that we know that they're always intellectually prepared to be here and they are set up for success in the classroom if we can do the things outside the classroom to support 
them um, to to make it a little easier and to, work on retention. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we don't we want students to be able to focus on studies. We want students to be able to focus on building community. Uh, we want them to be focused on being involved outside the classroom and and preparing for a career after school. And so, in, across the board in in our division, in, in large ways and small. We're really drilling down into policies, procedures, programs to determine first, are these relevant? And if they're not, let's let's figure out what it takes to make them relevant. Uh, number two, are there unnecessary barriers to success for our students? And if so, how do we remove those unnecessary barriers? And so we're trying to be really proactive, as the president said, in making this a student-ready um, university because certainly um, we talk a lot about college readiness. We want to be sure that we're student ready, and, and we're doing that uh, across the board um, to, to, to be more student ready than maybe we have been in the past. And I can give a couple examples of new things that are, um, one that's an, a thing that's been going on for a long time, and one that's a brand new thing. Um, we're working together as a leadership team to raise a new residence hall. And we know that's partly a cost issue for our students, right? We have young people that come here with their families and they can't find a place to live in right. Boise. And so, and, and we know from research, there's a lot of research on this, that student retention and success improves when they're right here with the library, with their classmates, where their professors are, where the, the, extra, the, you know, the lecture that's optional, you're more likely to go if you live right here than if you have to drive mm -hmm. home to Meridian and then drive back. And so that's an investment in our students' future, and that that effort is um, spearheaded by folks in Jeremiah's shop, really thinking about how do we make sure the residence hall operates mm -hmm. in that way. And you know, we just won two national awards, two in the same year, um, for our math learning center, because as I always say, two things students are the most afraid of are math and poetry, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and we want to help students feel a sense of intellectual autonomy around math and not be afraid of math. And our Math Learning Center has been so successful that we skyrocketed, skyrocketed the success rates in, in our math classes. And that's up through calculus. So students are using it all across the curriculum. And it has been so effective. And it was an effort that began by asking that question, what was it that was keeping students from being successful? And how do we move the needle to support them so they can be? And it wasn't that students didn't have the intellectual capacity to do the math. It was that they weren't confident that they could do the math. And so it's very problem-based. It's very engaged. Um, it helps them build a sense of self-efficacy as they work those math problems. And then they have more confidence in all of their classes. And so we're really looking for all the different ways that we can make an impact on their success and thinking about it curricularly in terms of their student experience in terms of how we can provide that support so we're really trying to think in ways that are and in ways that are new and fresh and exciting and that's why we were getting this national recognition because people were blown away by how much the math learning center has moved the needle kevin just one thing to for for your listeners to then tie it back to the campaign mm -hmm. That's why the name of the pillar for scholarship support, but also all of the support that we're providing for, that philanthropy provides for students, like that you mentioned in your generosity around the journalism program, student access and success. 
so you can see the intentionality and the alignment of the messaging we're doing around how private support aligns with our blueprint for success and those that the president jeremiah shared again tying back to both access and success let me go back to before you can do retention you gotta get students on the campus in the first place and i wanted to ask a little bit about fall enrollment numbers and there were some good numbers there obviously i think there were more good numbers from your perspective than, than not as good and increases in in-state in students mm -hmm. um, which has been a, a focus for, for quite a while as i do the math a little bit of a decline in terms of the first year numbers overall can you walk me through what you saw in the numbers this year and where that leads you going forward sure well we've been we've been focused on on our on our in-state population and uh last year we had a a large bump in our um, in-state population this year, a smaller one, but still significant. Um, and though our first year class is coming in a little bit smaller, you'll see that our retention rate has grown exponentially over the, over the course of the past 10 years. Um, it, during the past 10 years, we are, our four-year graduation rate has increased by 67%. Our six-year graduation rate has increased by 21%. And we're proud of those numbers because not only are we bringing students in, but we're, we're surrounding them with the support me mechanisms to be sure that they are successful both here and beyond. And so we're going to continue to, um, we're gonna continue to, to go out into our Idaho communities and beyond to, to provide students with the opportunity to come to Boise State if this is the place that matches their, their educational goals and interests. And I think that the work that we've done to increase our, our success um, rate with our students and, and the on-campus experience that we provide, I'll put it up against anyone, and I think that's being recognized. And so we're excited about our, our um, numbers, not just because they're numbers, but we're excited about the fact that we are, on a semesterly basis, um, uh, graduating folks that are gonna make our state better. And so that's and ultimately our success, but also going back to that big picture of the budget and its financial sustainability for, for Boise State if you can keep students here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it allows the investment the state makes in each student that comes here, it allows that investment to come to fruition, right? So it's the best ROI that we can give that individual to finish that degree, and it's the best impact on the state when that student finishes that degree and goes out and brings their talents into the world. I have to ask about the other big piece of the financial puzzle for mm -hmm. higher education is what happens at the legislature. Yes. It's been tough to get higher ed budgets through the legislature. It's tough to get a permanent building fund budget through this past session. Mm -hmm. Session's about a month away. What do you expect? And what are you hearing? What's, what are you hearing from lawmakers? I, I think that in an election year, things tend to have a little more tumult. Um, I don't know what we'll see. Um, what we have heard when we've talked to lawmakers and we've met with them is we've seen how impressed they are with these numbers that you've heard um, Jeremiah share. And we've seen that they understand the impact we're making, but there's a, there's a concern that higher ed be efficient and that higher ed um, spend this the state appropriation dollars very wisely and boy we're ready to uh, I'll quote something you just said we're ready to put ourselves up against anybody um, we have one of the lowest tuitions in the country 
and 45% of our students graduate with zero dollars in, in student loan debt, or 55, excuse me, 55%. And the 45% that do have some debt, as, as um, you may have heard me say before, all four years of their education at Boise State are less in debt than the cost of a pickup truck. And so we're trying to really bring that value because we understand that's really important to our legislature. We hear our legislature talk about that all the time. And I spend a lot of my time, as you and I talked about the very first time we sat down to talk, I spend a lot of my time really trying to help people see what we're doing and educate them about what we're doing because I think that gives them a new kind of confidence. Um, but in some ways, it's hard to anticipate that the last few years, there have been some surprises in um, the ways people have approached higher education. And so um, we'll be ready to answer any questions they have for us, and we'll be ready to show them the impact on those Idaho students and the impact those students are making when they graduate. Micron is, you know, making a big expansion here, and they said to us, you've got to help us out and bring more engineers. So we're ready, and we're ready to produce more nurses, and we're ready to produce, you know, it, that science, the new science building that was the PBFAC funding that you mentioned, that the goal behind that is to make sure that we're meeting those state needs for those hot jobs and that we're really providing those grads and we don't want to delay people's time to graduation because they can't get in the class. So we're gonna serve the state, we're gonna serve those students and we're gonna help make the state thrive. And you mentioned it's an election year so you're expecting maybe a tougher round of questions from, from lawmakers. I don't know, Kevin, if they could be tougher. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> so no easy way to make this transition, President Trump, but I do have to ask about the story that our friends at Boise Dev had last mm -hmm. week about the public records. And just to quickly recap, we had a university official say in a deposition that the terminology was changed in one, one round of records, making it more difficult to, to get through a search and saying that you know, she'd been instructed to avoid certain topics in public records that could then be uh, searched and, and received for records requests. How do you respond to those, uh, those comments and to that story? Well, I'll tell you something, Kevin. I look forward to the day when I can talk about particular cases, but whenever there's ongoing litigation, of course, I can't talk about that specific. Right. I know Big City Coffee, which is, you know, BCC, you know, is, is right. Um, Beyond the litigation, though, there's but, a question about transparency. Right, right. Um, I, I really have confidence in um, the attorneys who work in that office being diligent. I don't see those public records requests and when they come in they go to an attorney who's trained and who's specially um, uh, instructed to ensure that we follow the law and that we respond to the requests in a timely fashion and they i i do have faith in those people and in fact um, when don raised a question to me some time back i went and met with our attorneys and i said that's a priority to me, to make sure that, that we are sharing information because we don't have anything to hide. Now, to tell people to be judicious, I think, is totally appropriate. You know, it, it, some, people say things orally sometimes that might be um, 
not very thoughtful or, or um, might use colorful language. And so we always tell people to be appropriate in anything that you put in a written form. And I had somebody tell me when I was young, as a leader, to only say something in email that you'd be comfortable having as a headline. And I think that's a really important lesson to teach people. that You can't be flippant when you're in any of your communications, but especially in your written communications, because that can cause harm if you're, if you're being flippant. So we always give that advice to people, but we certainly don't, you know, there's not an effort to direct people to be surreptitious, and I really look forward to the opportunity to talk more about those right. I mean, examples. and you kind of got at what my follow-up question was going to be, that there's a big difference between being judicious and obtuse. Yes. Obtuse is one violating the spirit, if not the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. Those allegations, do they concern you to the point of, have you talked to anybody in, in the legal staff about how records were, how records are kept and maintained I, I actually, I have had, I've had these conversations on a number of occasions, and my mentor at Arizona State has always said, it, when you're doing your job, you don't have to be afraid of public records. It's, it's been, it, we, actually the reason we dedicated somebody to that work is to make sure those responses would be dealt with timely and that there was consistency, you know, so that there was somebody reviewing those consistently and who understood the law and it wasn't just some add-on to somebody's job but that was a, a change that we made after I got here and and that was my direction to people was to be um, it, to always follow the law and to always work for clarity and transparency and and so there, you what's happening at this um, I have been assured by people that, that that is what's happening. And this is a conversation that we've had on many occasions. And I think there can be disagreements that are good faith disagreements. But I be really believe that those people in that office are acting in good faith. And they have assured me of that, and that's what I have asked them for, is to act in good faith. But I understand that whenever there's um, a gap in information, that gap, it's just like any, with any person, with a spouse or with a friend, when there's a gap in information, sometimes people fill in those gaps with what they imagine is possible in those gaps. And sometimes there have been situations in my career when I wasn't at liberty to speak because it was either not legally appropriate or there were HR reasons for not speaking. And I'll tell you, Kevin, that's often the hardest part of my job when I can't tell people something that is true that I know would impact them. And uh, in fact, when often when people ask me, what's the hardest part of your job? That's one of the hardest things. Um, but I do believe that our attorneys are working hard and in good faith. And, um, and I really will look forward to talking more about those issues down the road. Well, I feel like we covered a lot of ground here this, uh, today uh, on a variety of topics. So I appreciate all three of you taking the time this week. Thank you. Thank it's you. Thank great you. to talk to you, Kevin. Again, that was Boise State University President Marlene Trump, Matthew Ewing, who is Boise State's Vice President for University Advancement, 
and Jeremiah Shin, Boise State's Vice President for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management. A lot more news to get to at idahoednews.org and definitely an emphasis on transparency this week. Ryan Supi, our new State House reporter, he's the, um, the guy who's going to be covering the legislature with me starting in January. He takes a good hard look at a law that passed at the very end of the 2023 session. This is the uh, property tax law that passed that provided schools with more than $100 million to offset uh, school bonds and school levies with the idea that that money is going to uh, lead to property tax relief. So how is it working out at this point? And what does it mean in terms of property tax bills? Ryan takes a good look at that at idahoednews.org. Darren Savan continues to cover the ongoing and somewhat secretive process of hiring a director for the Idaho Public Charter School Commission. He has the latest on that. And I write about a bill that we received from the University of Idaho for almost $2,400. And it all stems from a request that I made uh, last month for records pertaining to the U of I's potential purchase of the University of Phoenix. So what was I asking for? And why is the University of Idaho asking for almost $2,400? I have a story that explains all of that. So check out all of those stories at idahoednews.org. And... Follow us every day for the latest in education news, the latest on education policy and education politics. Check us out every day. And also check out Carly Flandro's podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. In her most recent edition of The Teacher's Lounge, she talks to Idaho's brand new Teacher of the Year. So you'll want to check out that podcast and keep an ear out for future editions of The Teacher's Lounge. Follow us on X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it. Uh, We will tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking stories. Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. Comment on our stories there. And watch out for the next edition of my podcast. In the meantime, this is Kevin Richard. Have a good week. (laughs) 